Hey everyone, welcome back to Scars Left Behind, episode 16, Extend Postpartum Medicaid Coverage and US Pandemic Response Aid, the publicly funded insurance program Medicaid for Low Income and Disabled Individuals covers 43.1% of all births in the US. Unfortunately, vital pregnancy-related coverage ends just 60 days after giving birth for most people on Medicaid. Black and Latinx women, as well as other birthing people of colour, make up a disproportionate share of Medicaid enrollees. Research has shown that closing gaps in coverage could improve lactation and human milk feeding support, assist with family transitions and the physical and emotional recovery of birthing people. Lack of insurance and transitions between plans disrupts trusted relationships between patients and providers who work together to address conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure and other chronic conditions. Before a person becomes pregnant or during early prenatal care. Extending Medicaid coverage to 12 months would likely prevent many of the roughly 12% of pregnancy-related deaths occurring after six weeks postpartum. Despite the coverage gains made under the Affordable Care Act, women of colour are still more likely to be uninsured, even during the perinatal period. Coverage gaps also create harmful barriers to seeking care and receiving help for complications after giving birth, including access to mental health services for the 1 in 10 birthing people who will experience postpartum depression, not to mention the stress of taking on the out-of-pocket costs associated with not having insurance or being underinsured. Additionally, the Affordable Care Act provides necessary coverage for community-based lactation support and human milk feeding resources, breastfeeding, chest feeding, and the provision of expressed human milk. Human milk feedings have been shown to improve health outcomes across the life course for birthing people and their infants, increased bonding between the dyad and reduce health care costs. Medicaid expansion is an ethical imperative and moral duty of federal and state governments to protect the health and welfare of the most vulnerable populations in our society. Comprehensive insurance coverage must become the standard ethic of care and a moral priority in efforts to reduce the impact of maternal mortality and morbidity and improve health and wellness during the postpartum period. With no federal mandate, the 12 states that have continued to deny access to insurance through Medicaid expansion will likely forego extending postpartum Medicaid It is shameful that this is our reality during the COVID-19 global pandemic. 
and being someone who lives in the UK and we have free health free healthcare. Obviously we do obviously we do have options where if you wanna go private you can. And you can, you know, go on a like a payment plan as such. But obviously being someone in the UK we don't have that problem here which has its own issues but I just wish that everyone could receive the same treatment regardless of uh, your income you know it should be the same for all not different one additional consideration is the missed opportunities of the pandemic namely shelter in place regulations that could have served as a pilot program to extend the postpartum Medicaid and pay workers to stay at home. By focusing on workers who are hardest hit by COVID-19, we could have accomplished complementary goals, given these workers are the same people who are likely eligible for expanded postpartum Medicaid coverage. A recent report from Time Up makes the case for a worker-centred recovery findings so that 52% of Latino women and 44% of black women anticipated losing paid work as a result of unpaid caregiving responsibilities compared to 30% of men. And that is where the disparity comes in and you know we could go into the argument of race if you know if that was your line of thinking but to me and yes you know for all of I am a white male right I can't speak for every other man but I for me I want I want everyone treated the same. I want women to have equal equal rights. I want them to have equal pay and be treated as an equal. That's where I come from with my standpoint. In addition, one in four birthing people have to return to work within ten to fourteen days after giving birth. The lack of paid family leave coupled with potential loss of health care coverage further perpetuates health inequities and disparities. One state, California, expanded, expanded sorry, Medi-Cal, the state version of Medicaid, by the provis- Provisional Postpartum Care Extension in 2019. The PPCE includes extended Medi-Cal, Medi-Cal coverage across the first year of the postpartum period for birthing individuals diagnosed with a perinatal mental health condition during pregnancy or up to 90 days after birth. We believe these policies should be the standard of coverage for all pregnant capable people, regardless of insurance payer and mental health diagnoses. Extending postpartum Medicaid coverage to 12 months save lives and promotes health and the US is one step closer to making this a reality. 
representatives Alma Adams, DNC, and Lauren Underwood, we introduced the Mom Nibus Bill, which is a sweeping legislation that consists of 12 separate bills to address maternal morbidity, mortality, mental health, workforce and payment modules to STEM, STEM US. Maternal health crisis, the mom Libus will help to build on the ongoing effort to secure the Medicaid coverage extension, which has long been considered low-hanging fruit. Within days of the reintroduction, the House of Representatives announced on February 11th 2021 that the Energy and Commerce Committee would fast-track review of postpartum coverage which provides an option for states to extend Medicaid coverage to 12 months after birth. The provision was passed by Congress and signed into law on March 11th by President Joe Biden as part of the American Rescue Plan Act. Unfortunately, this optional optional expansion would not be universally applied, would expire in five years if not renewed, and would not have matched federal funds. Shameful when considering an estimated 60% of maternal deaths occur in the postpartum period, and that a majority of maternal deaths are considered preventable. We applaud the organisations that have worked to support both the momnibus and extension of Medicaid during the postpartum period. Despite the obvious shortcomings of these policies, including the exclusion of undocumented birthing people, it is important to remember this is a flaw and not the ceiling. Expanded healthcare coverage must go hand in hand with access to quality care. Redress of systemic barriers to vital health and social services with and supports as well as targeted interventions for eliminating racism and sexism within the healthcare system. And <coughs> again from my viewpoint that goes without, that goes without saying. Because within any institu- any institution, whether you like to hear it or not, there's going to be racism built into it. So, you know, a redress of systemic barriers would be a world of good, especially towards the black community, Latinx, and so on, because they do need vital care. It's not just, you know, because of the skin of your colour, or whatever the case may be, it should be a one a one system for all, and that's just my my view, you know. So, on the anniversary of this global disaster, we take a look back at some of the biggest mistakes, surprising successes, and lingering questions. When the World Health Organization first called COVID nineteen a pandemic on March eleventh, twenty twenty. Few people had any idea what the world was in for. The, pro- the progression was swift, borders clamped shut, authorities issued stay-at-home orders, and public life ground to a near halt. 
Most of the world had no experience dealing with an infectious disease outbreak of this scale. The previously unknown virus, now called SARS-CoV-2, could have spread through the air, often before or, in some cases, possibly without ever causing any symptoms. COVID, though mild for many people, struck down elderly and more vulnerable individuals and occasionally very healthy ones with a vengeance, launching a wave of fear, suffering and death unlike in any in recent memory. In the beginning, when this started a year ago, we knew that it was spreading and we knew that it also was lethal in some percentage of people, says Stanley Perlman a virologist at the University of Iowa, who is an expert on coronaviruses, a group that includes SARS-CoV-2. But I don't think we had a full appreciation, appreciation about how bad it was. Among the biggest shocks was that the US fared worse than most other countries, with more than 29 million cases and nearly 530,000 deaths as of this writing. We absolutely can't say that we had the most robust response to the pandemic up to this point because we have had a higher death rate per capita than so many other places, says Monica Gandhi, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. As the country raced to react to this new and terrifying scourge, mistakes were made that together cost hundreds of thousands of lives. The tireless efforts of healthcare workers, along with unprecedented vaccine push, have saved countless others. Scientific American interviewed scientists and public health experts about the biggest mistakes in the U.S. Sorry, in the U.S.'s response. Some of the key successes and the lingering questions still need to be answered. Downplaying the danger and sidelining experts during the pandemic's crucial early days and weeks, then President Donald Trump and other authority figures actively minimised the virus's threat. Trump dismissed it as no worse than the flu and said the pandemic would be over by Easter. One thing that shouldn't have been done is people downplaying the infection. That was a real big problem because if you let the pandemic get out of control and don't take it seriously, it gets worse. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention initially told the media that the threat to the American public was low. When a CDC spokesperson acknowledged in late February that disruptions to daily life could be severe, the agency was quickly sidelined, and Trump himself became the government's main conduit for COVID updates through his daily briefings. The Trump administration really tightly controlled the CDC could put out, says Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the Georgetown University Center for Global Health Science and Security. This muzzling of the CDC and top government health experts made it hard for them to communicate accurate and life-saving scientific information to the public. 
under President Joe Biden's administration, government science agencies and health officials have been given renewed respect and independence, but rebuilding public trust in these authorities will still take time. Slow and flawed testing, the CDC developed its own test for the virus, rather than employing a German-developed one used by the World Health Organization. But the CDC test was flawed, causing a deadly delay while scientists worked out the problem. The agency was not designed to produce tests at the scale needed to spot the infections as they silently spread through the population. Meanwhile, the Food and Drug Administration was slow to approve tests made by private companies. An epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Caitlin Rivers, she also says the earliest criteria for getting a test were too stringent. One often had to have been hospitalised with severe symptoms and have recently travelled to a high-risk area. As a result of these hurdles, the virus spread undetected for weeks. By the time testing became somewhat more available, community spread was already rampant in many places, making it difficult or impossible to do contact tracing and isolate people before they infected others. In this pandemic, things moved so quickly that when you screwed up for two or three weeks, it made a difference. Testing availability has improved, but remains uneven. Some experts have argued for the use of widespread rapid antigen testing, a type that is cheap, does not require sophisticated laboratory processing and could be done at home school or office, but some scientists still have concerns about the accuracy of the tests, and the FDA has been slow to approve them. Inadequate tracing, isolating and not and quarantines, the time-worn methods of combating an infectious disease, testing people who may be sick, tracing their contacts and isolating or quarantining those who are positive or exposed, works for COVID as well. The WHO repeatedly stressed the importance of these measures and countries that followed this advice closely, such as Vietnam, Thailand, New Zealand and South Korea, succeeded in controlling their outbreaks. In addition to its test problems, the US did not do an adequate job of isolating those who were known or suspected to be infected or had recently travelled to a high-risk area. Tracing their contacts or requiring quarantines for those who were exposed, China imposed extremely strict city-wide quarantine. Other countries required those who may have been exposed to stay at a government-approved hotel or other facility for a quarantine ranging from a few days to a couple of couple of weeks. Such policies would likely have been harder to implement in the US, a nation that prides itself on personal freedom, but not doing so came at the expense of keeping the virus in check. Confusing mask guidance. Although face masks are now widely considered a crucial part of stopping transmission, US and global health authorities were slow to recommend them for public use. 
Many countries in East and Southeast Asia, including China and Japan, had normalised mask wearing well before the pandemic, in part because of the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. Unlike the SARS virus, however, scientists now know that SARS-CoV-2 often spreads before a carrier develops symptoms, and possibly even if they never do, in the early weeks and months of the COVID outbreak, the CDC and WHO stated that face masks were not necessary for the general public unless a person was experiencing symptoms or caring for someone who was. The agencies also initially urged people not to buy high filtration N95 and surgical masks because they were needed for healthcare workers and were in short supply. Because of inadequate government stockpiles, though perhaps well-meaning, the WHO's and CDC's guidance sent a mixed message about mask effectiveness and about who deserves protection. The CDC changed course and recommended cloth face coverings in April. The WHO did not do so until June, citing inadequate evidence of their efficacy before then. The CDC did not respond to a request for comment, and the WHO referred a Scientific American to press briefings that addressed these issues. In these briefings, experts pointed to a lack of high-quality evidence for mask use. The WHO's Director General also stated that in the absence of other public health measures, masks alone will not protect you from COVID-19. Even after health experts reached a consensus that masks were effective, Trump refused to set an example by wearing one in public. Instead, instead, he mocked people who wore them, and many of his supporters rejected masks as well. I don't think it should ever become a political issue, Rivers says. It's a straightforward public health intervention. A study in Nature Medicine, published online in October, estimated that universal mask wearing could have saved nearly 130,000 lives during the fall and winter of 2020 to 2021. <clears throat> Most states did ultimately institute mask requirements and Biden has made them man- mandatory in government buildings and on interstate transit, yet the several states such as Texas and Mississippi have just removed mask mandates and other restrictions entirely, we've seen this happen over and over again. Where the virus picks back up, they implement more restrictions in various states and localities, it goes down a little bit and then they just open back up again, rather than saying, hey, you know, maybe this became a huge problem in the first place because we opened back up. We haven't seen to learn from our mistakes. Airborne Spread and Hygiene Theatre Early in the pandemic, US health authorities believed the virus spread primarily by direct contact or relatively large droplets from a nearby cough or sneeze, not by far smaller droplets called aerosols that linger in the air. As a result, officials placed a huge emphasis on washing one's hands and cleaning surfaces. Scientists now believe transmission from surfaces is not the main way the virus spreads, 
and that aerosols play a much larger role. Ensuring proper ventilation and wearing well-fitted high-quality masks are much more effective ways to reduce transmission than deep cleaning surfaces. The latter, which critics have dubbed hygiene theatre, continues to be a focus of many offices and businesses. Structural racism fuels health inequities. The pandemic exposed and exacerbated deep-rooted racial and economic inequities in health and healthcare. Black and Hispanic individuals and other people of colour were sickened with and died of COVID at disproportionately high rates. Many people in black and brown communities had already long suffered from high rates of underlying conditions such as obesity and diabetes as a result of inadequate healthcare, lack of access to nutritious foods and outdoor space, and higher exposure to pollution. They also comprise a large percentage of essential workers in frontline industries, with an inherently high risk of COVID exposure, such as nursing, homes, meat packing plants, and restaurant kitchens. The uneven death toll is a wake-up call that far too many people of colour lack access to preventative healthcare as well as protections such as paid sick leave or hazard pay. I do think the pandemic has laid bare some of those inequalities. Public health experts have been lacking tackling, tackling this problem for a long time, adding we need to draw on these lessons about underlying vulnerabilities from other communities are affected and how to engage effectively with hard-to-reach communities. Decentralised response. The US government structure meant that much of the pandemic response was left up to state and local leaders. In the absence of a strong national strategy, states implemented a patchwork of largely uncoordinated policies that did not effectively suppress the spread of the virus. This caused un sudden massive spikes of infections in many local outbreaks, placing enormous strain on healthcare systems and leaving no region untouched by the disease. Every district, every county, every state could make decisions and keep them to themselves. Gandhi says, and we just have the uneven applications of public health recommendations in a way that I can't imagine. Any other country does. The Trump administration had been widely criticised for how the pandemic played out here. But Gandhi adds that the US government's decentralised nature would likely have been an obstacle under any president. Despite the many mistakes and bad policy choices in the US response, there were some incredible success stories too. Vaccines perhaps the clearest success amid this crisis has been the development of several vaccines in record time. Less than a year after the virus was genetically sequenced, two vaccines, one made by Pfizer and BioNTech and another developed by Moderna, were found to have roughly 95% efficacy in preventing symptomatic COVID and 
were authorized for emergency use in the US. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine with efficacies of 66% in preventing moderate to severe disease and 85% in preventing severe illness alone was recently authorized as well. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine's efficacy cannot be directly compared with that of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine because the former was tested in a different population at a time when more dangerous variants of the virus were circulating. All three vaccines prevent severe disease, hospitalization and death. We are in an incredible place with this pandemic. To have developed vaccines this quickly and that are that effective, Gandhi says public-private partnerships were a big part of that success. She adds, several other vaccines have been authorised or approved in other countries, and more are in development. But the remarkable success in creating vaccines is tempered by the fact that most of the world still lacks access to them, and early rollout efforts in the US had a slow and stumbling start, largely because the federal government did not provide states with the resources for distributing the vaccines. Further, black and Hispanic people are being vaccinated at far lower rates than white people, and more work is needed to overcome vaccine hesitancy in some populations, including Republican voters. Yet the the pace of vaccinations is picking up, and Biden has said the country is on track to have enough vaccine doses for every US adult by the end of May, fueling promise of a return to some normality in the coming months. Heroic efforts of healthcare workers faced with unprecedented levels of sickness and death, healthcare workers stepped up and risked their lives to care for COVID patients, nurses, aides and orderlies, cared for the elderly and most vulnerable individuals as the virus ravaged nursing homes, paramedics responded to calls at all hours of the night, doctors, nurses and other hospital staff comforted dying patients as they struggled to breathe, and held their hand when they said goodbye over video calls to family, mem- to family members who were not allowed in the room with them. Over time, medical professionals learned better techniques for treating the disease, these ranged from pharmaceuticals such as steroids and monoclonal antibodies to low-tech interventions, including proning or simply turning some patients onto their stomach so they can breathe more easily. Even as nursing homes and hospitals became overwhelmed with COVID patients, hard-working staff kept showing up shift after shift, facing down terror, exhaustion and despair. The public mostly did its part. Despite COVID becoming a part of the country's bitter, escalating political divide, many Americans followed public health guidance regarding mask wearing, social distancing and avoiding unnecessary risks. Surveys shows the majority of people wear masks when they go out. Johns Hopkins Rivers says, I am really heartened by the sense of purpose the willingness for the whole country to come together and change their lives and protect themselves and their communities, she says.
combating misinformation in a media environment where misinformation and disinformation can reach millions through a single tweet sorting out the signal from the noise has been an enormous challenge but for the most part science journalists confronted by the informational chaos with clear evidence-based reporting when trump made uns- unsupported claims about safety levels or mask wearing or dubious covid treatments journalists and high profile scientists such as anthony fauci quickly set the record straight but as conspiracy theorists continue to circulate misinformation about the disease and vaccines it is more important than ever that media outlets remain on guard lingering questions as the world passes this one year milestone in the pandemic many unknowns remain what will happen with the new variants several novel strains of SARS-CoV-2 have emerged that could threaten progress against the disease a variant called B117 first identified in the UK is deadlier and more transmissible than the original and it is on track to become the dominant variant in the US this spring another variant that was initially spotted in South Africa called B1351 has mutations that appear to help it to at least partially evade some of the vaccines a third variant that was first seen in Brazil called P1 has overrun parts of that country and also contains worrisome mutations currently these variants are in a race with a vaccine and scientists hope enough people can can be vaccinated quickly enough to outmaneuver the new strains some vaccine makers are already working on a booster should they be necessary how long will immunity last the duration of immunity to covid whether from natural infection or vaccination remains unknown a large study demonstrated that people who had recovered from infection still had antibodies as well as so-called memory b cells and memory t cells six to eight months later a number of reinfections have occurred with some of the new variants however the cdc recently released guidelines saying stating that with a few exceptions fully vaccinated people who are exposed to the virus do not need to quarantine if they do not show symptoms time will tell whether vaccination provides immunity that lasts months or years and if booster shots will be needed and just like we do every year with the flu jab i i do think that this will become a yearly thing the same as the flu jab you know inadequate tracing isolating and quarantines the time-worn methods of combating an infectious disease testing people who may be sick tracing their contacts and isolating or quarantining those who are positive or exposed worked for covid as well the who repeatedly stressed the importance of these measures and countries that followed this advice closely such as vietnam thailand new zealand and south korea succeeded in controlling their outbreaks in addition to its test problems the u.s did not do an adequate job
or isolating those who were known or suspected to be infected. What is the future of SARS-CoV-2 exactly? What will happen to the virus over time remains a mystery. Most scientists think it will never go away completely, but could become less common and milder as more people are vaccinated against it or as they build up some immunity through natural infection. It may ultimately become something like the flu, a virus that circulates every day and causes some severe infections and deaths but does not shut down society, eventually it could evolve into a less virulent form, like strains of the common cold, but that could take many years. Thank you for joining us today on our latest episode. In order to access all of our episodes, you can find us on Acast, Spotify, Google Podcast. Pocket Cast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, and Breaker, as well as Anchor and Radio Public. You can also find us on our socials at Instagram on Scars Left Behind, Behind Without E, and also on Facebook at SLB Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Scars left behind, again without the E.